Live Truth, a study through Second Peter. We're going to be uh, moving through that throughout the fall. If you're new to Seacoast, welcome. My name is Pastor Dale. I'd love to meet you out in the plaza afterwards. Uh, if you do that, donuts, coffee, or on me. All right. So I'd love to get to know you better. If you have a chance, be sure and hang around. If you have a Bible today, open up to Second Peter, Book of Second Peter, toward the end of the New Testament. There's always an outline provided every week that you can get used to pulling out. It'll help you if you want to take a few notes. It'll help you remember and learn a little more. It's also always a five-part devotional. If you're new to Seacoast, we want you to understand that we kind of share the, have the conviction here that you learn more when you engage with God's Word on your own. So as much as um, I love stepping up and Ryan loves stepping up to teach you every week, uh, don't miss on the back side of the outline. There's a hard copy given to you. You also can sign up and have it emailed every morning to you with the Scriptures to your favorite device. So get in the habit of retouching the sermon at least four or five times a week and you're going to see a dramatic shift in how much you take away from it so just a personal encouragement i've been doing it for my whole life and it really really makes it makes a difference pray with me as we go into god's word father thank you for your word and thanks for all you teach us thanks for the uh, truth that we discovered last week that we can actually have the true knowledge of the true god that we can have the true awareness of Jesus Christ. We can truly understand who we are in Christ. And I pray that you teach us about how to build on that foundation today. I pray you teach us uh, from your word, do what I can't do, uh, and uh, make a difference in each life here through the power of your word, by your spirit, the work of your uh, tremendous work on the cross. We love you. We thank you for all of that. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Becky and I have a long, long-standing habit on our day off of a favorite thing to do, and that is to go to the ocean. There's something beautiful and magical and mysterious about uh, just looking out over the beach at the sea. Uh, we've never been able to live down there. We've always kind of thought, wow, wouldn't it be so cool to actually have a home right with this as our backyard? But, you know, we've kind of given up on that years ago. But, you know, the reality is every time we go down, it, it never fails that we're usually riding the bike paths or we're going along, and, 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 and I, I'm always tempted when I look and I see a for sale sign. And a lot of times there'll be a for sale sign on this oceanfront lot. Have you ever seen those? You know, I always kind of wonder, you know, maybe it's like, maybe someone's trying to offload it. You know, maybe they just want to give it away. Maybe I should make the call. You know, but I've never even called to check the price. Now, why is that? Answer? Because you know that I can't afford it, right? Now, some of you might be able to, but I can't go there, right? So I know that the price is going to be something north of what I can even imagine. So it's, it's, it's expensive real estate. You know, or if there's a home for sale right on the ocean, I know that that's just kind of out of my reach. But those vacant lots always fascinate me. So I want to tell you a story this morning and have you kind of imagine with me this scenario. Imagine if you go for that bike ride on the beach and you pass one of those totally vacant lots. And I mean the backyard of that lot is the beach. And it's for sale. You come back a week later and you ride past and the for sale sign has been switched. And it now says, what? Sold. Sold. 
So it kind of gets your fascination. You come back another week later and you notice that not only has it been sold, but now the the sign is down. And there's this eight-foot green mesh fence that California likes to put up around vacant lots if they're going to go under what? Construction. So you got the construction fence up, and now you're really curious. You know, someone's bought the lot, someone's paid a big price for the lot, and, and now something's going to be built, and, and, and you're imagining what? You're imagining this is going to be something pretty spectacular. So as you go by, though, you know, week after week, you come by every week, and something's changed, and then you're by one week, and you begin to notice, man, you know, the, the equipment is there, they're doing some heavy excavation, they're really cutting into the, into the, into the, into the property, uh, and then the cement trucks begin to show up. And there's not just one cement truck, I mean, it's just like one after another, and they're dumping load after load, yard after yard of of cement. They're laying the rebar. And, and, and you peek through the fence and there's this massive foundation already laid for this, what's going to be something big. You come back a few weeks later and you notice that the piles of supplies are beginning to be built up next to that foundation. You, you begin to read on some of the crates, you know, because you're nosy, you know, so you're looking through the fence and some of the crates, you know, talk about, you got Italian marble, you got granite counters from Brazil, you got huge racks of travertine flooring, you've got this, this expensive high-end slate shingles for the roof and, and, and even some big support beams. And the beams, they're not just they're not just laminated beams. These are like huge, big beams. You know, cherry, mahogany, walnut. I'm just, just imagine all this. And, and you think someone has paid big bucks for this lot. They've paid big bucks for the lot. They've invested heavily in high-end materials to build the very best. And you wait. And then all of a sudden, you know, you miss maybe a month or so and you come back and as you approach the lot, the green fence is down. And as you approach the lot on the bike path, this is what you see. Boom. Oceanfront luxury. No, you don't see oceanfront luxury. Now, the foundation is right out of the picture. The foundation is still there. The huge stacks of materials are still stacked around the foundation. But in front of it, where you thought there'd be a big pool, there is a shack. Simple, corrugated steel siding. The very best of whatever you could gather for the roof. Tin roof, corrugated steel siding. Nice little front porch, shack, beachfront, oceanfront shack. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I can kind of read Dawn's face. She's thinking, you know, so I think I could still live there. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I could read your face. I'm kind of thinking, my wife is thinking, you know, Dale, I'd trade our house for that, you know, just for the view. But, but you know, what else does that make you think when you see that? The first word I think is, what a Waste. Someone else said, what a dump. <laughs> yeah, what a dump, what a waste. You know, because why would someone spend big bucks to have the very best lot, the very best of materials, but then just let them stay in a pile and be content with a shack? You know, you know we've all seen, maybe not this extreme, but we have seen it happen, haven't we? 
You've seen the big house going up somewhere in a neighborhood and all of a sudden before it's done, maybe the land, maybe the foundation is laid, maybe a lot of the materials are around and all of a sudden, maybe the block walls are up and then all of a sudden construction just stops. And it's left unfinished as just kind of an eyesore. Somebody ran out of money. Somebody didn't finish what they started. He said, Dale, why don't you tell me this story? As I've been studying First Second Peter this week, I am thoroughly convinced that this represents the tragedy that Second Peter is trying to prevent. Not in your real estate, but in your life. You see, it would be a tragedy for someone to waste the resources to purchase the lot, buy the materials, and then build a simple shack. But what if we're not talking about real estate, but we're talking about life? What if we're talking about your life and my life? What if we're talking about all that Christ paid a big price, his life, to purchase? And the question is, what are we building on his foundation? Listen to the Word of God. We're going to go back and I want to review a little bit of last week's message because I think it's vital to us understanding the next four verses, all right? So pick it up with me. Let's review. Last week, it began by describing, to tie into today's metaphor, what I would call God's provision. That the foundation is laid, the materials are purchased, and it's all given to us for free. So the foundation's there, supplied by the work of Christ on the cross. The materials are purchased, and this is how he described that in verses 2 to 4. Just listen to the riches of the grace of God. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of Him who called you by His own glory and excellence. For by these, He has granted to us, it means given to us freely, He has granted to us His precious, magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, And then he goes into today's passage. So for us to go into today's passage, I want to go back in time first and remind you of what, for this very reason, is talking about. And to use our metaphor, I want you to imagine the foundation that's been laid by Christ here. Uh, We'll bring it up on the screen, and I've given you a little diagram. If you want to kind of play with it, fill it in. Maybe it'll help this truth cement in your mind as we go through the rest of the passage. But in summary, it's this that we have a foundation of truth, of, of the truth of who you are in Christ. The truth of who you are in Christ, I would write across the very bottom of that diagram. Because it's the foundation for whatever we're going to build on top of it. It's the foundation for everything God supplies to us. It's a gift of grace and peace that's multiplied to us. And if I were to summarize what, what verses 1 through 4 teach, and I'll show it to you right out of the language of the text, it's that you are a totally new person in Christ. Everything changes. You are a new person 
with new potential, with new power, and new promises. Let me show it to you right out of last week's text because when I went to my life group this week with some very intelligent guys that I meet with, one of the first questions that came out was, okay, so what do you mean these new promises? What are the promises that we really build on? So we talked about it some more, but it caused me to remember and to, it reminded me of how sometimes, you know, you can go through a long sermon and not get it. So let me help you get it. Here it is. You are a totally new person. He says, grace and peace are multiplied to you. They're supplied in abundance. In other words, the grace of God is the foundational, one of these foundational truths to who you are in Christ. That you don't come to God anymore by your works. You don't come by your performance. You don't come by shaping yourself up enough that you, that you are pleasing to God. You have a relationship that's based totally on the grace of God. It is a free gift. The unconditional love of Christ. That when you come simply by faith to believe this truth of Christ and who He was and what He did on the cross, that He's a resurrected Savior, when you place your faith in Him, you are a new person. You have new grace. You have new peace. I talked about that some last week. Ultimately, I love this phrase. He says that you are partakers, verse 4, that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow, what's up with that? Could you explain that to somebody? Here it is. Let me help you. Genesis chapter 1 says that God created mankind, and He says, let us make man in what? In our image, in our likeness. And He created man in the image of God. So man is created, you were created, not as a just physical being, but as a spiritual being with a soul, with a sense of a, of a mind and heart and soul that is, that is spiritual in nature, not just physical. So, so you already have part of that divine nature. But the problem is, because of sin, it got really messed up. And, and now, uh, because you, have been, you were dead spiritually in our sins, it says, for because in our sins we were, we were dead before Christ, it says, now spiritually you're brought alive. You know, Jesus had this conversation, didn't he? Remember Jesus talking to a guy who was highly moral, very religious, uh, a good Jew named who? Nicodemus. John chapter 3, if you want to read it this week. And his conversation with Nicodemus basically said this, Nicodemus, you say, what, what, Jesus, help me understand what's missing. And he says, Nicodemus, the problem is you're alive physically, but you need a spiritual birth. Uh, it's been popular to call it, you need to be born again. The Greek word used could be translated born again or born from above. You need a spiritual birth to go along with your physical birth. You know, you're walking around, man, you're alive and well, but the problem is on the inside, you need to be spiritually alive and apart from faith in Christ, we don't have that. But what Second Peter is saying, now that you've discovered Christ, placed your faith in the true knowledge of God, the true knowledge of Christ, you now have owned into that faith and with that, you are now a new person. You're alive spiritually. You are a partaker of the, of the divine nature of God. Good grief. Not only are you brought alive spiritually, but the very spirit of Christ dwells in you. If you want to write a reference down, it's Romans 8 9. It says that if, we, if any man has not the spirit of Christ, he doesn't even belong to Christ. So the cool thing is Jesus says, not only will I be with you, I will be in you. So after he went to heaven, he sends his Holy Spirit to live in every believer, every follower of Jesus. So you, you, you are a part of the divine nature. You have the potential, therefore. You have a new potential. What do we mean by that? 
This passage put it this way. I love it. He says, therefore, you have everything, uh, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have the potential to have to be alive in Christ. You have the potential to actually develop godliness. That is godlikeness. Now, it's not that you become a god, okay? So don't plan on going out and maybe you want to create your own little oceanfront lot, okay? You, you know, it's not going to happen. But the reality is you can become like God. You have new potential to change. Why is that? Well, you have new power. The Spirit of God lives in you. Um, so you have, you have new power. He says divine power has been granted to us. And then finally, in verse 4, again, he says you have precious, magnificent promises. Uh, someone after the first service actually asked me, said, Dale, I, I, I understand what you're teaching, but what, these precious, magnificent promises, what are they? I mean, I need, I need more specificity. So I said, well, first of all, they're the ones that are on this list. You're promised that you have a new identity in Jesus Christ. That if you trusted Christ, you are a new person with new potential, new power, and a ton of new promises about who you are, what life is like, and how you can grow in life and godliness. So, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of them right in verses 1 through 4. In fact, last week I gave you a handout that had five of them listed on the handout. But in addition to that, there are a lot of promises in God's Word that help me understand, wow, this is what God has promised me. This is what's true of me in Jesus Christ. So we'll just leave the word truth up there. But I want you to understand that the word truth means the truth about you in Christ, that you have all of this. So make note of that. I think the challenge that we face as believers before we ever tackle verse 5 is we need to not leave verses 1 through 4 behind. If you tackle today's message and challenge and you forget that the foundation of all of it is your life in Christ, the power of Christ within you, the words of Christ, the promises of Christ. If you leave that behind and try to tackle what I'm about ready to teach, you will be frustrated. And that's why I said, you know, we've got to take the first part of this message to really cement the foundation of this life, the foundation of this thing God wants to build in place. Now, in my life, I think, well, okay, wow, all that's true of me. So what's the problem? Uh, can I confess? My problem is this. Sometimes I don't feel like this. I get out of bed and I don't feel like I'm a new person, new potential, new promises, new power. Instead, I feel kind of powerless and stuck and sinful and I'm still kind of messed up and I'm the old Dale. Now, anyone here ever feel like the old Dale? Okay, you don't do that, but can you put your name in there? Yeah. You know, so, so sometimes I don't feel this. But that's why you've got to realize this passage begins with the concept of faith or trust. You know, he begins in verse 1, to those who have received a faith of the same sort or kind or quality, remember that last week, or quality as ours. So those who have received this faith that you've come to understand, it's by faith that I've got to believe that stuff. I believe it's all true of me, but on any given day I can wake up and if I don't feel it, then I don't live in light of it. So the question is, where do you put your faith? Where do you put your faith? Many years ago, when I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, as a high school student even, I saw a little diagram and a little booklet I will never forget. Uh, I kind of enjoy trains, okay? So that's one a hobby of mine, along with 
riding at the beach and lusting over property. But uh, apart from that, you know, as a joke. But anyway, but these trains, and, and, and you've got to go back in time to steam engines. Can you picture the old steam trains of the Wild West, right? There was, and, and behind every train was what? A coal car, yeah, or wood, coal, a fuel car, right? The coal car, so you got the engine, you got the coal car, and you got some other stuff, and at the end of the train you got what? A caboose. You got me. Okay, good, you're with me. Now here's the deal. Uh, this little diagram taught me this. Uh, faith is the coal, okay? Faith is the coal. Now the engine are, is the truth. The engine is the facts or the truth of God's word. Faith is the coal. What do you think the caboose is? It's my feelings. It's kind of how I'm feeling. Now, cabooses are cool. I like cabooses. They, you know, they're red, different colors. Okay, so cabooses are really cool. But here's a question. Can a train run without a caboose? Answer? Yes. Right. So, you know, the caboose is you know, kind of like dressing. You know what I mean? It's, it's nice, but you don't have to have a caboose for the train to run. Here's the deal. Can the train run? Uh, if, what if I decide I want to take my, my coal and I'm kind of tired of putting it in the engine. I'm, instead, I'm going to put it in the caboose. So I start shoveling it into the caboose. What do I have? I have a dirty caboose. <laughs> Write that down. This is heavy theology, okay? Yeah, get with me. Okay, yeah, I have a dirty caboose. And what happens to the train after a while? It runs out of coal. And what happens then? It stops. It stops. So if I choose to believe or put my trust, my faith, in how I'm feeling about myself... Before long, I will have a dirty caboose and my train stops and life grinds to a halt in terms of my spiritual life. So what God's word teaches is this. Where where do you put the coal? You put the coal in the engine. And when I keep shoveling my coal into the engine, when I keep putting my faith in God and his word, when I keep believing the truth that God has taught me about who I am and who Christ is and what he did for me and, and the fact that I'm a new person with new potential and new power and new promises, all of a sudden everything changes and I move down the track. So that little illustration, maybe that'll help you to next time you start thinking, yeah, but you know, I don't feel like Christ has provided all this for me. Then ask yourself, where are you putting your coal? Okay, you don't need a dirty caboose. You need an engine that you're putting your faith in. So keep that in mind. Trust the Word of God, the person of God, not your feelings. So God doesn't want to build a shack on a foundation like this. So what does He want to build? What does God want to build? Well, let's go to part two. And that is, what is God's dream for our lives? And I think what it is, it's a life well built on His riches, as I say in your outline. Now, now move with me. Now that we've laid the foundation that when you place your faith in Christ, you have a, the truth is you have a whole new identity in Jesus. You have all, all things are made new. Now, what do, we, what do we build on that? Listen to the word of God. Verse 5. Now, for this very reason also. In other words, in light of this incredible new, new promises and person that you, that you have become in Christ, in light of this, applying all diligence. Now, this is the first time in Second Peter that I'm told to do anything. Last week, it was all just know who you are. You need to know the truth, know the true knowledge of God and of Christ and what he's done. But now he begins to call me into action. In fact, not just gentle action, but he says applying all 
diligence. The word diligence means hard work. In other words, go after this thing. So now he's calling me into action as a follower of Jesus. And he says, in your faith, in other words, now that you are, you've bought into the faith, supply, and he gives a, a long list of things, and he's kind of, I want you to picture it like he's building a house, okay? In fact, we'll just, we'll just kind of build it one piece at a time. Number one, he says, supply moral excellence. Supply moral excellence. Now, the, uh, the NIV translation on this one I like a lot better, if you're looking at the New International Version, which says supply goodness. It means moral virtue. It means to be a person of good reputation. It means to be a person that, that is morally trustworthy and, 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 and you know, your morality is beginning to be, a, is beginning to be changed. You have a, you're a person, I just love the simple word, goodness. I mean, isn't it really cool if someone would say, tell me about this neighbor of yours. And, and they'd say, well, you know something? They are just good people. They're just good people. And all that encompasses in that moral excellence or virtue. Good character. But then he doesn't want to just build that. He says, secondly, supply, and with your, along with, or with your moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge. Uh, the word is, uh, it means insight or understanding. So now you're growing in goodness, you're growing in knowledge, uh, and these are increasing in your life. You, you, have, you have wisdom to understand uh, the truth that everything is, is built upon. And then as you grow in that goodness and knowledge, and he says, and in your knowledge supply self-control. The word self-control, um, I define it as passions under control. We all have different passions. We all have different temptations. And it's the ability to say no when you need to say no to a temptation that's outside of God's will. So now our passions are being under control. Now again, just to bring you back to the foundation, remember the foundation, one of the principles, I'm a new person with new power, right? Don't be surprised that all these things keep showing up. Goodness, self-control, those are two of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. That when you walk by the Spirit, you walk by the power of God's Spirit, then your life begins to produce fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. So again, this is not self... We don't build this stuff ourselves, but God supplies what we need. But He says we need to be diligently involved with Christ, doing the things we need to be doing, diligently working hard at our faith, and as we do, it's the power of God is unleashed and God begins to produce more goodness, knowledge, self-control. And then he builds the next one. He says, look, and, and with your self-control, supply perseverance. So he adds another room to the house, if you, want, you might want to envision it that way. Okay? He, he says, now you begin to have more perseverance in your life. So I think what's really cool about perseverance, my definition simply, is trusting in tough times. It's the ability to hang tough and walk with Christ, not just when you're praying, God's answering, He's giving you what you're asking for, but it's through the times when all of a sudden you're praying and God says nothing. You don't sense, you don't see God responding. You don't see God answering your prayers, at least not the way you've asked them to be answered. Or you don't understand, God, why are you letting this happen to me? 
I, I can't see the end game here. Um, so, you know, the ability to walk with Christ, not only in easy times, but, but tough times. If you want to go deeper on this one, go back to the sermon series we did right after Easter 2013. We did a, about, a, about a, I think it was an eight-week series called Everybody Hurts. Because we want you at Seacoast to understand that the Christian faith is not designed just to take pain out of your life, but it's to enable you to be able to actually have perseverance so that when you are tested, you stand up. And that's the kind of faith that, that this passage says we are to supply, we are to, to build, we're to add to this foundation. Self-control, perseverance. And with perseverance, he adds another, that's a big one, godliness. Now when I add godliness, that's a big room in the house, right? What's godliness mean? Reflecting the character of Christ. I think when I actually become more godly, it's not just my moral behavior. Now, it's me being transformed on the inside. It's me beginning to develop the heart of God. It's beginning to feel and think and live truth like God. You know, so now I'm becoming more like God. Now, if you even say that, I get, uh, how do I say that in front of a crowd? Because guess what? Anyone who knows me really well knows that, you know, is Dale, is Dale like God? Yes or no? <laughs> Don't vote on that, okay? I can ask my wife. So is Dale like God? She's quiet. Don't answer that. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I actually am a little more like God. Wow. Now, do I take any pride in that? Yes or no? No, you know, because if on the, on the, in the days and the times that I actually begin to think a little more like God wants me to and live a little more like God wants me to, if I'm growing in godliness, it's not because Dale's got his act together. You know, it's because, wow, I mean, it's because the truth, the foundation is, wow, the foundation is that I'm a new person with new promises and a new position in Christ. And by the grace of God, grace is multiplied to me. Peace is multiplied to me. I have new power through the Holy Spirit within me and wisdom through the Word of God that's given to me and the encouragement of the body of Christ that I'm connected to in my life group and elsewhere. You know, and all of this, these are just spiritual disciplines that help me draw from the foundation. You might say these are spiritual disciplines. When I worship, when I read the Word, when I pray, when I gather with other believers and talk about my struggles and my own temptations and sins, and you know, you know, when I when we're worshiping and encouraging each other, and we're in the Word and we're serving Christ and we're practicing disciplines of generosity, and all of these spiritual disciplines are simply ways in which I am drawing from the piles of rich materials that Jesus has placed around my foundation. Because the, the implication of this passage is, yeah, God has provided everything for us. But He says now, hey, with diligence, don't just build a shack of a life. God wants more than a shack built out of the rich materials purchased by the blood of Christ on the cross. See, we think people pay big bucks for an oceanfront lot. How about sacrificing the very Son of God, your only begotten Son, so that these, this foundation and these materials can be available? So this is what God wants me to be building. 
He wants to see me increasing in godliness. And then he adds two more, which shouldn't surprise me, because I think this is kind of, kind of building from the foundations up to, up to the, uh, the higher levels, you might say, of our spiritual life. And the next one is brotherly kindness. With godliness, supply brotherly kindness. You know, it, it's a word that's more linked to phileo kind of love in the Bible. Now, that's a little Greek word, but, but the reality is it's like a family love, brotherly kindness. Now, I like the definition of kindness. It's, uh, kindness is seeing a need and meeting it. I see a need and I meet it. And I do it because it's brotherly kindness and that I treat you like family. See, a lot of us are real quick to jump if family has a need. Because, hey, we're family. We've got to help each other. We are family. And he says, wow, guess what? I want family kind of love being given even when they're not family. See, so this brotherly kindness is, is a fruit of God's Spirit working in me. But it's one more thing. He says, I want you to supply brotherly kindness to your house. And then finally, and with brotherly kindness, supply love. And he uses the agape form of love. He uses that unconditional love. You know, if brotherly kindness is kind of love because of, I jumped over that, didn't I? If brotherly kindness is love because of, because you're family, because you're part of my church, because I want to help, you know, there's usually a because attached. Uh, well, God's love, I call it, is love in spite of. Because when I'm loving in spite of, I love in spite of the fact I'll get nothing in return. I love in spite of the fact you're not family. I love in spite of the fact that you're not very loving back to me. I love in spite of the fact a person is different and perhaps even persecutes me. This is where Jesus taps into the idea that we can even love our enemies by doing kindness toward even an enemy. That's God's unconditional agape love. Now that, that gets... That's, that's the roof of the house. So when I think of God and I think of all that he did, what is God's dream for your life and mine? This is God's dream. He's laid the foundation. He's purchased all the materials for goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godly bre- godliness, brotherly, brotherly kindness and love. He has supplied that by His grace. It's available, but yet there's a sense in which He says, now, applying all diligence, pick up your spiritual hammer and saw and start building these things. And it's an interesting balance theologically because some people say, well, Dale, I don't need to build these things. I just need to believe that they're mine in Jesus and they will be mine. And and there's a sense in which I agree with that. I agree that while God is, Christ has provided through His work on the cross uh, all of this this type of a life. But but then I realize, wait a minute, there's a lot of Christians who are not experiencing this. Is it because Christ hasn't supplied it? No. The lot is theirs. The foundation is theirs. The stacks of materials are right there, ready for them to say, Lord, let me live out who I am in Christ. This is their identity. But yet, the problem is, they think, you know something, but my life is just kind of a little shack, and I'm kind of content with the shack. 
And I, and, and I realized that working on, this, working on my spiritual life, uh, spending time with other believers, being in like a life group, uh, being into the Word, going to Rooted like a bunch of people are doing right now, uh, you know, doing the various uh, disciplines of the Christian life uh, that, that will help you grow into this. Uh, I, I don't want to pick it up. I don't want to pick up the hammer. I just want to relax in Jesus. And I mean, when I get to heaven, God will fix me. But, you know, God's dream for our life is not to fix us in heaven. His dream for our life is how about doing part of the work right now? I mean, he's going to have plenty to finish off when we get there anyway. Right? At least in me, he will. And by the way, does God expect us to have all these polished up and perfect? Look at verse 8. We're going to see that the answer to that is no. I love verse 8. It gives me a little more peace about who I am right now. He says, so I want you to supply all these things. And by the way, the Greek word for supply was literally used uh, in a non-biblical text. That Greek word, it means to add to or supply. It was used of a wealthy man lavishly furnishing his home or theater with all the trip, you know, with all the, all the, all the fine finishes. So my metaphor is actually a little more tied to the scriptures than you might realize. So he says, when he says, I want you to supply these things to dress out your house, dress out your life. Uh, that word is used of, uh, of, of, of a man dressing out his mansion. So, but what if you're not there yet? Well, look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the anticipation isn't that they're ever finished. The anticipation is these, these qualities need to be yours and they need to be increasing. Because you're not, you're not going to be perfected until Christ perfects you in His presence in heaven. But until that time, the goal is growth. The goal is be, get up every day saying, wow, in light of my foundation of who I am in Jesus, I want to keep building these attributes in my life. I want to see them increasing. Now, that's a cool concept. Because it helps me understand that, yeah, the grace of God is there. God loves me, forgives me, embraces me just as I am, but this is what he wants me to build in terms of my life. And that leaves us with a final question. Is if God has provided the foundation, all the materials by his grace, and then if God says, now, Dale, don't, after all I've done to give you all that you can be in Christ, don't settle for a shack. Don't have a shack kind of life, but let's build something much better than that. Let's build this. Then the question is, why does it matter? Because you might think, you know, Dale, why should I be so obsessed over trying to seek to supply and to build and to add these things whenever, you know, Christ is going to take care of it after I die anyway? Verse 8 gives us the answer. He says, because if you are increasing in these things, then you're not going to be useless and unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus that gives you salvation. In other words, God's purpose for your life is not just to be well-built, but useful. 
It's a life that's well-built and useful. Uh, This word useful is kind of fascinating to me. It it appears very few times in the scriptures. Uh, When I looked it up in terms of how it's used in other places uh, in the Greek language, the word for useless, uh, the words for useless, the opposite of useful, the word for useless could be translated unemployed, idle, useless, or barren. So when he says, I, I really don't want, you, I don't want you to live the spiritually unemployed life. Wow, now that suddenly, it hit me. What hit me was that God is not into just trying to build a life that looks beautiful. He wants a life that is useful. Useful to who? Useful to him. Useful to his kingdom. He says, you don't want your life just to be useless. So I want to build something beautiful in your life so that that beautiful life can actually go out. And that's why I think the final two are brotherly kindness and love because that's, that's the ultimate expression of everything below it is that it equips us to be used by God to love on the world around us and to really, really make a difference. So the question is, what, um, what kind of house do we have? You know, I've seen this house. I've seen this house. Let me give you two examples as we close. I've seen this house in Rwanda when I visited a widow who's living in a small two-room mud brick built out of the mud of her front yard and the grass that grows next to it, house. Uh, When we went in with uh, Chip and Kathy and our team last October to visit this lady, uh, we met her adopted son because she had adopted, along with her own children, she had also adopted an orphan named Eric. and, And to see her in her home, I... I saw this house. Here's a gal that has almost nothing. From a real estate perspective, in Southern California, wouldn't even be allowed to stand. But it was a beautiful house full of goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. And she had adopted this young boy into her family and showed him the love of Christ. And when we asked him what he wanted to grow up and B, when he grew up, uh, he said, I want to be a pastor because I want more people to understand how, what a difference Jesus makes. So this kind of a house can look like a mud hut in Rwanda that was much smaller than the shack you saw earlier in the opening picture. You know, but I've also seen this house in a friend of mine from Brea up in Orange County, a friend who worked hard and built a company and decided to sell the company and sold the company for several million dollars and, and then it said, God, what do you want me to do with this? And he doesn't live in a mud hut. He lives in a beautiful, new, nice, big home on the hill with a distant ocean view up in North Orange County. But he also um, has basically taken his wealth and invested it, started a nonprofit called Containers of Hope, Uh, committed to giving away a lot of his wealth in order to help care for orphans in 
West Africa, especially Liberia. And he and his wife are generous and looking for ways they can invest their house so that they're useful to God, not useless. So you can be on the extreme end of poverty or wealth. And spiritually speaking, um, what are you building? You can be building a shack that's of almost no use to God, or you can be building something beautiful and useful that God can really use. You know, when I thought about my opening metaphor of um, how God wants our lives to be like us, beautiful house built out of quality materials, and we realize now that has nothing to do with square footage. It has nothing to do with real estate. It has to do with the what's going on inside whatever house you live in, whatever's going on inside our own hearts and our own soul and our own lives. That's the house that matters. This is a house of God. Scripture uses the metaphor that your body is the temple of God. He lives there. So, God wants us to build well. To build beautiful, but to build useful. And that gets pretty exciting. That gets pretty exciting. I think that's what Second Peter is saying to us. Don't take the sacrifice of the Son of God paid the huge price to give you all of what's on that screen. All of that kind of life. And then don't just say, okay, Jesus, get me into heaven, but I'm kind of content to just kind of live in my own little selfish shack. Because it's much more exciting to say, God, transform me, change me, and uh, let's build life together. A life that glorifies God, is useful to God, makes a difference in the world we live in because it needs help. Amen? Pray with me. Father God, thank you for all that you uh, have provided for our lives. Thank you that you want us to, uh, to build well. You want us to build with you. Empowered by your grace and all that you supply through Christ. As new people in Christ, alive in Christ, with new potential for life and godliness, with the very power of God within us, with the magnificent promises of God to encourage us, direct us, uh, help us to think differently about who we are. That we're not trapped in our life of building things that don't matter things that don't last. Help us build godliness, brotherly kindness, love, and use us to be useless and fruitful for you. We love you. We thank you for the gifts of your grace. May we build well with you. And Father, even our giving, make, uh, wow, convert our hearts into generous hearts that love to uh, partner with you as we give every week and, and uh, give as a spiritual discipline of trusting you as the source of everything we own. So we give to you. Uh, we also worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.